everyone. Uh, Aubrey Hodges here. Um, so as Carlos was saying, I am the chapter president for the Alexander Hamilton Society here at IWP. Uh, AHS is a national organization, has uh, many uh, chapters in uh, undergraduate universities across the United States. Uh, IWP, happening to be a graduate school, uh, is a special exception that AHS made. And our uh, first our uh, chapter was established uh, in 2022, fall 2022, and uh, we seek to uh, identify, educate, and launch young men and women into jobs, into uh, foreign policy and national security, we try to equip them with the right tools and the right thinking, uh, almost encompassing the same mission as IWP does. Um, and our chapter uh, is actually growing, and uh, if you're interested in joining, please talk to me. If you're a current IWP student, that is, please talk to me after the event, or you can email me at aubrey.hodges at iwp.edu. So our chapter is very welcome to uh, present to you Mr. Elon Berman. Uh, Elon is Senior Vice President of the American Foreign Policy Council, AFPC, in Washington, D.C., and is an expert on regional security in the Middle East, Central Asia, and Russia. He has consulted in the past for the Central Intelligence Agency and the U.S. Department of State and Defense. He has assisted various governmental agencies and congressional offices with foreign policy and national security issues. Mr. Berman is also a member of the Associated Faculty at Missouri State University's Department of Defense and Strategic Studies. He's a frequent writer and commentator. Uh, he's written for uh, the Wall Street Journal, Foreign Affairs, the New York Times, Foreign Policy Mag, and Washington Post, and uh, USA Today. Um, with that, please join me in welcoming uh, Mr. Elon Berman, uh, uh, this evening, um, as 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 we continue with the with the mod uh, with the with the program, um, so you're welcome. Thank you very much. I, uh, it's wonderful to be here. Uh, so this evening, uh, we're doing something a little bit different than the standard IWP lecture uh, that some of you are familiar with. Uh, Ian and I are going to hold kind of a moderated discussion, so-called fireside chat. Uh, between uh, about the uh, the relationship between the, uh, the the Islamic Republic of Iran and the Russian Federation, uh, these two nations have been in the news uh, very very recently, uh, and uh, certainly Iran with regards to the conflict between Israel and Hamas, uh, which has sparked some conversation uh, within the public discord. Um, I chose this topic personally uh, as chapter president because I thought it was relevant and necessary to begin. Uh, since we've seen kind of an increase uh, in cooperation between Russia and Iran uh, in the past year, especially uh, in regards to Ukraine. Um, so with that being said, I really want to just dive into the history of exactly where this cooperation started, uh, what are the strategies and goals of it, uh, kind of sort of the red lines where you think some vulnerabilities might be within the relationship, um, and any kind of policy considerations that you yourself would consider, sir. So uh, with that being said, uh, let's get started. Go. Okay. <laughs> so we know that the, uh, the relationship between Russia and Iran uh, is not mutually exclusive to current events. Um, we know that this kind of goes back uh, probably decades. Uh, could you just give us a little more uh, insight into exactly how lucrative this relationship has been uh, in the past and leading up to now, where you think it will go in the future? Right. Well, no. So I, I think that's the, the right place to start because you have to know where you were to know where you're going. And the Russian-Iranian relationship that exists now is 
until very recently, uh, was very much a, a, con a continuation, a, con a continuum from the relationship between the Islamic Republic of Iran and the USSR, uh, where in the late 70s and the 80s, uh, but then really sort of at the tail end of the Soviet Union and then following the Soviet, the Soviet collapse and the emergence of, um, of the Russian Federation, this is a relationship that really sort of, you know, uh, came into its own. Um, the, uh, the best way to think about it, and, and maybe the Soviet collapse is probably the, is, is the place to start, is the Soviet collapse created a, a series of stressors uh, on the successor state of the USSR. Uh, what part of it was economic, um, because the Soviet, the bloated Soviet era defense industry um, was, uh, it was not a, not a guarantee, not a sure thing that it was going to survive the transition from the Soviet Union to the Russian Federation. Um, you had the uncoupling of a whole series of republics, the uh, five majority Muslim uh, republics of Central Asia, uh, the three republics uh, of the, the, North, the South Caucasus, um, and the untethering of satellites in Eastern Europe. Um, and uh, also uh, this sort of, uh, I would say this, this injection of this new variable, which is uh, religiosity. So my, my, you sort of stand where you sit. My family, um, I'm uh, of Russian extraction. My family came out of the Soviet Union in the 1970s. And I would hear stories all the time when I was growing up about how the Soviet Union was formally atheist and, and the, there was no formal religion. And so we had these strange things where uh, I'm Jewish, all the, but I had a Christmas tree in my house growing up. But it wasn't a Christmas tree. It was a New Year's bush because, <laughs> because uh, we, my parents did not celebrate Christmas, but we celebrated New Year's. And so instead of Santa Claus, we had Father Frost who ushered in the new year, right? And this was this uh, interesting hybridization of uh, traditions that you could still get away with doing that were quasi-religious, but it allowed you to sort of uh, to do that. And I use that as an example because that was very much what the Muslim population of the Soviet Union experienced. And the Muslim population was actually very big, right? If you look across the, the post-Soviet space right now, you're looking at more than 50 million Muslims. Um, and so they were a significant and, you know, demographically, if you look at it now, they're a, they're a growing uh, minority of Soviet citizenry, but they were, uh, their religion was private. Their religion wasn't uh, sort of, uh, they didn't wear it on their sleeve. They weren't allowed to practice it openly. And so the collapse of the Soviet Union created empty ideological space where uh, religious movements and Iran is an ideological movement. It's an ideological movement with borders could actually step in and could exert uh, some influence, right? So the Russians had, had this problem also, which they had this popular, the soft, what they call the soft underbelly. Um, and then they had uh, sort of what we, the, what we see now as the culmination of this lingering phantom pains of empire, where you had Soviet leaders then, who are, you know, to a large extent, Russian leaders now, who believed that they were destined for more, that they were robbed uh, of an empire or of an extended sphere of influence through uh, an accident of history, right? Vladimir Putin famously said that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Um, and so, uh, but in the absence of a strong empire, you have to make alliances, right? So all these things from the, from the Russian side, from the, the immediate, in the immediate post-Soviet period, it 
grab they sort of it, it led Russia to gravitate towards Iran, right? On the on the military front, uh, the Russia uh, the Russian military, the post-Soviet military, was looking for new clients, and the Iranians had just come off of a ruinous eight-year war with neighboring Iraq, the where the Iraqis uh, manhandled them is probably the nicest way to put it. And the uh, Iranians were looking to reconstitute their military. Um, the Russians figured out that engagement with Iran was a great way of preventing Iran from meddling in the Muslim communities of Central Asia. And they also figured out that uh, partnering with countries like Iran allowed uh, the Kremlin to exert power over the horizon. The Kremlin may have retrenched, because you know they had a diminished post-Soviet status, but working with like-minded regimes like the one in Tehran allowed them to exert influence, right? So th that you know that's the tripod that really sort of put everything together um, in the early 1990s, and over time you've seen the evolution of this relationship. So conventional arms became cooperation on weapons of mass destruction, and Russia became a cardinal stakeholder in the evolution of Iran's nuclear project. Um, you, uh, if you notice uh, that the Iranians, the, and by the way, the Iranians, for the large part, have uh, kept true to their word and they've stayed out of Central Asia and in places where they have meddled, like in Tajikistan, uh, where the, Iran had a fingerprint or, or a footprint on that country's civil war in 1994, 1995, the Iranians got out of the mix very quickly. And it was very, in very large part due to that balancing consideration, right? So... From both sides, the relationship is enormously fruitful. The Iranians have had, up until the Ukraine war, a superpower patron that ran interference for them in multilateral fora, in places like the UN, uh, IMF, World Bank. Um, they had, uh, the Russians had a reliable arms client, uh, and they both had this shared goal of diminishing perceived American hegemony in the Middle East, right? Which the Russians couldn't do directly because of their diminished post-Cold War status. And the Iranians couldn't do it because, well, quite frankly, the planes don't fly anymore. Not, not well, anyway. And, but working together, right, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So you see this confluence, um, or at least the historical basis, right? It make, makes a lot of sense. What you've seen over the last year and a half is this sort of this complete inversion of that equation. Because Russia, which was traditionally the senior partner, is now the supplicant. Right? And the way you can sort of figure this out is uh, who goes to visit whom, right? So for a no, it's, it's true, right? You sort of, you, who wants the relationship more? And for a long time, it was uh, emissaries of the Supreme Leader of Iran that were traveling to Moscow to bend the knee and to say, you know, we really, we need your support. We, this, you know, we're having trouble. We're getting sanctioned by the West. Over the last year and a half, the uh, diplomatic traffic has flowed almost exclusively the other way. Because what's happened is, as a result of the Ukraine war, the Russians have been isolated internationally. They're uh, facing a widening raft of, in, of uh, Western sanctions. And they're also running deficits, both in terms of manpower and they're running deficits in terms of military hardware. And so suddenly, the shoe's on the other foot. And the Iranians have become the supplier of military material like uh, kamikaze drones for the, uh, for the Russians that the Russians are lofting. Um, into Ukrainian airspace. Uh, Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps is training uh, Russian uh, operators for those drones in the Crimean Peninsula. There's all sorts of evidence that the Russians uh, have come to rely about, uh, on Iran. And so the power equation in that relationship has really shifted very dramatically. 
So you mentioned uh, the relationship that they do have being as almost a, a fledgling block against American against American hegemony. Uh, so I guess my next question would be, uh, what exactly would be the, the, the goal of, of the block then? Is it just completely get rid of the, the, uh, the, the American sphere of influence in Middle East or in Eastern Europe, or is it the entire, the entire globe, or is it, is it, is it, is it, is it bigger than, than, than that? So I, I think that's an interesting question. Uh, to be quite honest, I'm not sure that policymakers either in Tehran or in Moscow have really thought that through sort of to the end of it. Um, the, the parallel to draw would be the relationship between Russia and China. And, and you guys are all from DC, so you, you know this. There are at least two schools of thought with regard to Russia and China, right? There's a school of thought that believes that what you're seeing between Moscow and Beijing is a strategic alliance. And there's a school of thought to which I belong, which uh, thinks, uh, posits that it's more of a strategic alignment, right? Because the traditional relationship between China and Russia is one of competition rather than one of cooperation, right? Over natural resources, over the you know, uh, territory in the Russian Far East, right? All sorts of things. But in the near term, they can cooperate very well, thank you very much, right? Because uh, their uh, commonalities are far greater between themselves than with the United States. And I feel like there's a little bit of that in the Russian-Iranian relationship as well, where both of them, for the moment, share goals uh, uh, to uh, diminish American allies like Israel, to pare back, to dent uh, the perception of American vulnerability, right? Which, by the way, if you sort of look at, at the media coverage over the last week or so, they're doing a pretty good job uh, through all these pinpricks attacks uh, that are targeting U.S. troops that fall below the level of discomfort uh, or below the level of any meaningful sort of response that would reset the table. Um, and, you know, th this benefits Iran because it shows the, uh, the heft of Iran's asymmetric strategy, right? Because Iran doesn't think about strategy the way the U.S. thinks about strategy. It doesn't think about bombers and missiles and submarines. It thinks about proxy groups and cyber warfare and, and sort of standoff weapons because the experience of the Iran-Iraq war is sort of very ingrained. Asymmetry is the name of the game for them. Um, but all of this rebounds to Russia's benefit as well. But if you look further into the future, let's assume that both of them are successful. Let's assume that they put us on our heel, on our back foot, on our heels. Uh, both of them are incipient empires, right? The, uh, and both of them are incipient empires in ways that conflict with one another. At the height, right? So we, we talk about the Persian Empire, we talk about the Russian Empire, those are misnomers because it, it wasn't a unitary empire. It was a succession of empires, a succession of dynasties in both cases. If you look territorially at the way they expanded throughout the Middle East and Eurasia, they, there was actually a fair amount of territorial overlap, right? There, there were territories that both claimed at one time or another. So my only argument here is that, you know, what, what exists right now, this strategic alignment is just that. It's an alignment. I'm not sure that it's a permanent condition. And... Russian ideologues, uh, folks like Alexander Dugin, and for those of you guys that, that uh, are doing Russian statecraft and Russian history, um, Alexander Dugin, uh, you, should, you should be reading him. For those of you that don't, uh, Alexander Dugin is the single most important Russian ideologue that you've never heard of. You might have heard of him now because, you know, since in the last year and a half, his name has sort of become more popular. Um, but he wrote a book back in 1997 called The Foundations of Geopolitics, uh, in Russian, Asnobu Geopolitiki. And he posits that 
uh, Russia is destined to be an empire. Um, uh, also, Russia is destined to be a Eurasian empire uh, in conflict with the United States and with the West. Um, but until Russia can regain that status, all sorts of tactical partnerships are necessary. And he actually lays out and he mentions Iran by name. And so from the Russian conception, this is good, but this is utilitarian, right? This, this may not be a permanent condition, but it, it certainly serves Russian interests for now. That's, a, that's actually an interesting like, perspective uh, because uh, I know back during the Cold War, there was always an animosity, uh, particularly when it comes to religion with the Soviet Union. And uh, the Soviet Union did not always want to see Iran technically exporting the revolution into Central Asia because that's just another back door that they come, they could come through and destabilize uh, that part of uh, of the union. Um, so, Elon, um, that brings me to my next point. Uh, so, what do you think would be some of the red lines between Moscow and Tehran? So, so look, people matter. Right, personnel is policy. Right here in Washington, but people matter on a very organic sense. So I remember ten years ago when I could still go to Russia. I can't go to Russia now because I've been sanctioned by the Russian government, which is great. It's like a, it's like a proof of concept for me. But um, but when I could still go to the Russian Federation, I remember traveling out to um, uh, to Tatarstan, to the Republic of Tatarstan, right, Central Russia, and uh, it was. Uh, the sort of the capital of the Republic of Tatarstan is a town called Kazan. It was uh, very nice, very cold, because uh, I went there in December because I clearly don't know anything and I go there in December. Um, and I sat down with researchers who were sort of studying. Uh, Russia's always sort of very, uh, very much been on a, on a hair trigger about the potential for Islamic extremism. And so I met with some of those researchers and they were sort of looking at it. And this was right at the time when, um, you know, the Islamic State was starting to take shape. Uh, in Syria, and this, they were sort of they were very attuned to it, and they're very attuned to the potential for radicalization. And they said, I, I, I was having breakfast with with one of these guys, and he said this fascinating thing to me. He said, "You know, there's only two countries that have a consulate here in Kazan." And I said, "Oh, okay, who?" And he said, "Well, it's Turkey, right? Which makes sense, right? If you if you sort of understand the culture, you understand sort of you know the the, the transition, you know uh, uh, the." sort of the, the migration of sort of the great Turkic nations and Turkic languages. And the other is Iran. And I thought that was such a curious thing to me because 98% of the Russian Muslim population is Sunni. Iran is a Shiite nation. So that doesn't make any sense, except for the fact that we've seen time and time again, Iran does exactly this strategy. Iran seeks to engage Muslims on a grassroots level, whether it's in Russia or in Latin America or other places, and seeks to build an alternative identity. It's not so much about, hey, you have to get with the Islamic Republic's program. You have to believe in the exportation of the revolution. It's you're discontented. Your economic state is not so good. We're going to use that as this entry point to sort of to uh, indoctrinate you, to radicalize you. And so one of those red lines, I think, you know, very clearly is the perception on the part of the Russians that the Iranians are meddling, whether meddling in their geopolitical backyard in uh, the soft underbelly of Central Asia, or even worse, meddling in places like Tatarstan or in the North Caucasus or whatever it is. That isn't happening yet. And I remember on that same trip talking to officials about why, that, why, why is Iran behaving, right? Because at that time we were very concerned uh, here in Washington, we still are or should be, about Iranian behavior. 
And they use a really interesting phrase to me, right? Uh, which roughly, uh, in Russian, which roughly translates to controlling through investments, right? So the Russian strategy with Iran, right? They understand the downside of this. They understand that an uncontrolled Iran could actually wreak all sorts of havoc, ideologically, if nothing else, um, among vulnerable populations. So they're controlling through investments. They're giving Iran what it wants, whether it's nuclear technology or conventional arms, as a way of getting the Iranians to behave nicely, right? right. This is in other, other uh, in a less charitable way. This is blackmail, right? But it works, and it works for the Iranians, and it works for the Russians. So I'm going to throw a curveball at you. Is that okay? So do you think the Russians? Do you think that they they want the JCPOA reinstated with with Iran, or do you think that this is something that 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 a nuclearized Iran would be beneficial to them somehow? So I, I think it's an interesting question. Um, I I don't know. Look, so so bottom line up front, I'm I'm a huge skeptic of the JCPOA. Um, I'm a skeptic of the JCPOA in its original form, its 2015 form, because it was very transparently to me an attempt to kick the nuclear can down the road. Right? There's an enormous amount of difference between uh, policymakers who say Iran will never go nuclear. And policymakers who say Iran won't go nuclear on my watch, right? That latter formulation is I'm going to push this off, this decision off. And that's precisely what the Obama administration did. Uh, the JCPOA is not open-ended. JCPOA, right, uh, last month we saw sunsets on key provisions in terms of uh, Iranian conventional arms transfers. Um, all of the JCPOA, the entirety, sunsets, right, all restrictions that are built in, sunset in the next four years, right? So this doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, it, you, those that are supporters of the JCPOA like it for a tactical reason, meaning it slowed the pace of Iran's <clears throat> nuclear development. I can understand that. But when you ask them, has it really derailed Iran's will to nuclear power? The answer is very, uh, very blatantly no. The problem that I have with this administration's Iran policy is that it's even worse in the sense that they're not looking for a longer and stronger deal. That way they talked about that when they came in. But what they're actually trying to do now is they're trying to salvage a deal that's mostly expired. And, you know, and they're willing to do things like, uh, you know, uh, not enforce existing sanctions, right? So that gives the fig leaf of the Secretary of State can go up, you know, uh, up before Capitol Hill and he gets grilled by senators and they say, you roll back sanctions. He says, no, we haven't. Well, non-enforcement is the same thing as taking off sanctions because countries like China, countries like India know that there's no penalty, there's no concrete uh, downside to trading with Iran. And so what you've seen is this massive surge in Iranian uh, economic stability, right? And one of the reasons why the protests that you see taking place in Iran for the last year have petered out is that the regime is actually more stable geopolitically now than they were a year ago, right? They have less to be worried about because they don't really see the international community putting the squeeze on them. Um, when it comes to Russia, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I know that there comes a point, right? Every Russian official I've talked to, when, when you, you sort of, you, it gets to two in the morning and they've had a few drinks, they express worries about, you know, an unfettered Iran that happens to be a nuclear power because they don't, they congenitally don't trust the Ayatollahs. But they don't ever, I mean, candidly, I don't think they ever think it's going to get that far. I think Russian officials and American officials are united in this idea um, that this is a bad situation, but we're kind of benefiting from it, at least on the, the Russians are. 
and somebody's going to take care of it before it ever comes to pass, right? And and they're both thinking about the state of Israel, right? The Israel will have a military option and will take care of it. So we, we don't really have to make hard choices because a country the size of New Jersey will take care of it. Well, what we've seen over the last month has really sort of thrown a wrench in that calculation because I don't think the Israelis have the bandwidth to do anything like that, even though in the preceding year, when I've traveled to Israel and I've talked to people, I saw this sort of awakening where Israeli policymakers were saying, wow, you know, for a long time, we knew this was a problem, but we thought that this was something that America would handle. And now we're realizing America won't handle it, right? So before October 7th, you had at least a growing political will in Israel to do something unilaterally. I don't think that exists now. I think they're sort of, uh, they're preoccupied and they're going to be preoccupied for a long time, particularly if Hezbollah opens a northern front in Israel. But that, the elephant in the room is the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, the Iranian nuclear program is advancing. It's sort of marching along. It's increasingly mature. It's increasingly threatening. It has the potential to reshape the balance of power in the Middle East. And no one has a solution. So that kind of segues into the next point. What would you think would be a viable policy option to deal with the, uh, the, the cooperation happening between Russia and Iran? Well, I, I think it's a, it's a good question. So first of all, uh, it's necessary. I'm, I'm going to say something controversial, but, but I think it needs to be said because it's necessary to understand what American policy looks like from the outside. We have a, an administration that's been very forceful in its support for Ukraine. I think, you know, because of, because of my heritage, because of sort of, you know, um, my understanding of, of the Russian government and its ideology, I think entirely correctly. But it's also doing this thing where it's segmenting policy, uh, where it thinks that Ukraine policy or policy towards Russia has nothing to do with its Middle East policy. And that's patently not true. So what it looks like to the outside, to countries in what is now known as the global south, for example, is that the United States has allocated over $100 billion in both economic and military aid to Ukraine to fight against Russia. And it has also liberated, what, what I don't know what the tally is now, was it uh, $16 billion, maybe $10 billion, whatever it is, right? Um, in direct assistance and then indirectly lessened sanctions that allowed Iran to build up its foreign exchange reserves that Iran has turned around and built drones with and sold to the Russians. So in a very real sense, if you're an objective observer, it looks like we're playing two sides to the middle, right? And that's a very bad place to be because it sort of highlights the incongruity of our policy. Um, it also explains a lot about why we never said the second part of the sentence with regard to what's happening over the last month, right? Because to me, the elephant in the room is that Iran is the arsonist in what we saw take place in Israel, right? Iran created the geopolitical conditions for this to be possible. Iran provides $100 million annually uh, to Hamas. Um, it's not the sum total of Hamas's money. It's also, uh, it provides that money even though Hamas is Sunni. It's, it's the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, nonetheless, it's a very uh, opportunistic and it provides uh, that money. And it supplies it with, you know, very sophisticated weaponry. So I think it's not, it, it's a bit of a straw man to say, you know, to have officials say, um, like the uh, deputy DNI uh, said in testimony, well, we, we don't see, you know, a green light from Iran authorizing uh, this operation specifically. Okay. But the conditions were made possible by Iranian sponsorship, right? The conditions were, they set the table, so to speak. 
Um, and the problem that you have is you have an administration that because it's still holding out hopes for engagement with Iran, it's still holding out hopes for a moderation of Iranian behavior, it won't say the quiet part out loud. And so when President Biden at the end of October, when he gave that speech and he linked the fight in Ukraine and he linked uh, Israel's fight uh, against uh, Hamas as this sort of this common fight against, against barbarism, against uh, tyranny, exactly correct. But then he didn't say the second part, which is that, you know, this extends beyond, right? There, there's, there's a common factor in, in both things, right? And I'm not this sort of conspiracy, conspiracist that thinks that Iran is pulling all the strings, but there is an Iran connection in, in both cases. And so to me, Iran is a very vexing challenge that we really, we don't have an answer for, and worse still, we're not even prepared to talk about yet. I want to open it up to the audience now um, for any questions for, uh, for Elon here. Uh, I see... I see actually a couple couple hands. I see one in the back. Uh, Grant, is that you? Grant, fire away, man. If I could ask everyone to kind of state their name and association. Uh, my name is Grant Turner. I'm a student here. Uh, forgive me if I was a couple minutes late, so you might have addressed this, but how do you see uh, Saudi-Iranian relations moving forward? Ah. So that's a great question. Um, all right, so this is going to be a long answer, but, but I hope this sort of, uh, this, this is my TED talk on Iran, okay? So um, the current war, the way, I think the way to properly understand Iran's role is to understand that what Hamas did dovetails with what Iran is trying to do strategically in the region. Um, and the scope of the operation is such that it just it's just not believable that the Iranians did not have any indications that this was coming, right? This was just simply too, too large scale of an operation. So the Iranians have, the way I would like to think about it, is if you can picture it in your head, is they have three concentric circles of crisis that they're trying to deal with. The first is domestic, right? All politics are local. What you've seen in Iran over the last year, more than a year now, has been these persistent protests that were galvanized by the death in custody of a young Iranian, uh, Iranian Kurdish woman named Masa Amini, right, who uh, wore the hijab improperly, according to Iranian authorities, and got taken into custody, was beaten savagely, died in a hospital. And she became the standard bearer for this uh, sort of groundswell of rejection for the, uh, for, the, for the regime, right? The rejection of a regime that's increasingly aged and sclerotic and is imposing religious edicts that the population, which is young, doesn't really believe in, doesn't really uh, adhere to. Um, and these protests uh, started that way, but they've become something more. And you can sort of see this with the way they protest uh, against, um, against the Supreme Leader, they protest against the, the current clerical regime, right? Um, and this is a, a pretty dramatic change because uh, a decade ago, um, you saw protests that still looked for behavior change, right? The green, uh, more than a decade ago, the, the Green Movement protests in, in 2009, they were all about modifying the behavior of the existing regime. What you see now is a rejection of the existing regime, right? The Iranians have figured out this is a closed ideological system. There's no changing this. So we need something else, right? So that's the first problem that they're dealing with, right? They have this loss of legitimacy and loss of intellectual cohesion at home. The second is regional. Because what you've had over the last three years is, has been this remarkable uh, movement and drift towards normalization that has brought Israel in from the cold. Uh, they've engaged with the Moroccans, the Bahrainis, 
uh, the Emiratis, they're having quiet contacts with the Saudis, they're doing sort of all sorts of, and they're having all sorts of conversations, right? They're, uh, their diplomats sometimes may not be so skillful and they talk out of turn about having quiet uh, diplomacy with the Libyans, for example, but it's all of a piece, right? It's all part of that, you know, Israel's like uh, stretching its wings. It's, it's stretching its wings in the region. And in the process, um, the Iranians are becoming increasingly isolated. So something for you guys to note, the current Iranian foreign minister, Hossein Amir Abdullahian, is not nearly as charismatic or genteel or well-dressed as his predecessor, Javad Zarif. Javad Zarif was the guy that, that ran circles around us at the negotiating table, right, uh, on the nuclear program. Um, uh, Abdullahian is, is not that, but he's been enormously successful because in the last eight months, he has traveled, and you can sort of go and Google it, he has traveled to every single country um, that has either normalized with Israel or is thinking about normalizing with Israel. And he's presented them with a value proposition, which is don't normalize with them, normalize with us, right? And that is sort of the uh, Iranian-Saudi rapprochement is part of that equation, right? The, this, uh, the Saudis have their, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it in a second, but the Saudis have their own consideration. But from the Iranian perspective, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to uh, throw a circuit breaker on the Abraham Accords. And the third, and so that's the regional. And the third level of crisis is the international. Um, you know, this sort of quarter century of Western sanctions as a result of their nuclear program, that's sort of solving itself because you have an administration, at least for the next year in Washington, that isn't committed to really enforcing sanctions and really pressuring and containing Iran's nuclear program. But on the other two fronts, uh, what Hamas did actually furthers both objectives. It furthers both objectives because First of all, among the Arab states, it injects doubts about the durability of partnership with Israel, right? Particularly uh, depend as the conflict goes on. And notice how many people are talking about Iran's internal situation currently. It's one, it's me, right? <laughs> I'm the only guy. So um, from the Iranian perspective, at least sort of peripherally, this is enormously helpful. Um, with regard to the Iranian-Saudi uh, normalization specifically, I remember being in Israel in April and I was, I was having precisely this conversation. It had just been announced the month prior. First of all, a huge coup diplomatically for the Chinese because the Chinese are not known to be a major diplomatic player in the Middle East. And the fact that they could pull this off really was their coming of age party, was their sort of their coming out party. Hey, we're a power broker in the region. But the reason the Iranians and the Saudis did all this is from, from the Iranian side is because they're trying to interrupt. They're trying to take Saudi Arabia off the table for the Israelis. And what the Saudis are trying to do, right, the day-to-day -day ruler of Saudi Arabia, uh, the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, um, has laid out something called Vision 2030. You can look it up. It's sort of, you know, it, it's a little bit amorphous, not quite as amorphous as China's Belt and Road, but pretty amorphous, pretty broad reaching. But it's rooted in a very simple understanding. It's rooted in the fact that we need to make the kingdom, the ki we can't have the kingdom be a one-trick pony, uh, sort of uh, uh, its economy be a one-trick pony and rely on oil anymore. We have to diversify. And everything flows from that because you have to attract foreign direct investment. And people with a lot of money, they like to do things like vacation with their spouses and they like to drink and they like to do tourism and things like that, right? So that, but in the process, pretty profound things are happening in Saudi Arabia. And the Saudis, all politics are local. The Saudis are trying to keep up that momentum. And they have a war to their south, right? They share a border with Yemen, where an Iranian proxy group called the, the Houthis 
uh, is in charge in Sana'a, and they've been trying to, uh, from in the Saudi lexicon, to pacify the Houthis for a long time, and they can't because it's really a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And so the Saudis, what that normalization was, was the Saudis saying, uncle, okay, uncle, you win because we have bigger fish to fry. We want to sort of, we want to turbocharge our economy. We have to not invest resources in this costly war of attrition that we have in the South. And the only way we can do that is by telling the Iranians that we're going to play nice, by deconflicting, right? And I remember in April being in Israel when this had just been announced and talking to Israeli officials about it. And they were, you know, uh, as those of you that have dealt with Israeli officials, you know, um, they know better, right? No matter what you tell them, they know better. And so I remember telling them, like, this is, this is a problem. And they said, no, 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 you don't understand. Uh, the Saudis can normalize with both us and with the Iranians. And my question to them always was, do the Iranians think so? Because I'm pretty sure the Iranians see this as an either or proposition and they feel like they have a geopolitical win. Turns out I was right. And this is sort of what it's looking at. It doesn't mean that that normalization is, is off the table, right? It's still on the table, although it's more remote now than it was a month ago. But from the Iranian conception, it was clearly an e uh, sort of an either or proposition. And so if my sense is that if the uh, Saudis begin to creep towards engagement with the Israelis once again in a month or two or three or half a year, the relationship with Iran is going to go downhill very, very quickly because the Iranians will see this as a threat to their standing. Dr. Harmon? Thanks, uh, Chris Harmon from the faculty here. Um, thank you for a really interesting conversation. It seems like, although it's set up as a bilateral, you could have one thin line in a triangle here and call it Syria. Um, both uh, Russia and Iran have very, very long relations, and they're both very military in some ways. So in some, in some ways, it'd be, it'd be fun to hear you just address that sort of uh, three-way partnership, perhaps. Sure. No, no, no I, I think that's a good point. Um, and Syria is sort of an interesting place because it cuts both ways, because it is both a problem, it's both... What, what, what do they say that the, um, in the Mandarin language, the character for danger is, can be disaggregated into crisis and opportunity? And Syria is that for both Iran and for Russia. Um, for Russia, for example, if you remember, um, back in September of 2015, the Kremlin made the decision to get involved and backstop the Assad regime militarily. At that time in history, there was a fairly, it looked fairly likely that Assad was going to fall. And as a result, Russia was going to lose its one military outpost in the Eastern Mediterranean, which was uh, the, the naval port in the city of Tartus. Um, fast forward, well, now almost a decade, the Russians have made tremendous gains using that engagement as a launch pad. Right? They have, so, I, I think it's almost doubled their arms sales to the Middle East. They have not one but two military bases in Syria now. They have the port of Tartus. They have an air base uh, to the north of Damascus. Um, and they have used that as this launch pad for a much more thoroughgoing regional strategy. Right? So if you back in the first half of 2015, the Russians didn't have a military presence in the region. 
uh, either in the Middle East or in North Africa. They had a Mediterranean flotilla, right? That's all they had. Now they have what? They have Wagner entrenched in all these different, you know, half a dozen different African nations. They have arms sales that are going through the roof that are helping to backstop some of the economic drain that's happening as a result of the Ukraine, right? So for the Russians, this is a win. Um, for the Iranians, it's a win too. And uh, one of the really interesting things is the way the Iranians talk about Syria. Syria in the Iranian strategic conception is strategic debt because they wanna entangle adversaries like the United States and Israel in Syria so they never make their way into the Islamic Republic proper. Um, and that's one of the sort of, one of the reasons why um, the Iranians are sort of forward deployed in Syria, but also they're forward deployed because, and if you, there's tons of maps, um, Institute for the Study of War has put out a good map a few years ago, uh, I think the Hudson Institute did as well, about these land routes that allow Iran to satisfy its imperial vision. Right, because what we're talking about is sort of building this empire—not this full, fulsome, you know, uh, 18th-century empire, but an empire of influence. And the Iranians have managed to do that very effectively, uh, with pockets of supporters in Yemen, pockets of supporters in Syria, pockets of supporters in Lebanon, uh, large pockets of supporters in Iraq. Right, and connecting those. Right, there's connective tissue. Right, there's there's transit routes. For those of you that that um, have might have heard the term. Israel used to do to engage in something called the campaign between wars. The campaign between wars was a series of very steady over the course of two and a half years, very steady series of aerial surgical strikes, mostly on Syrian territory to interrupt Iranian weapons deliveries to Hezbollah in Lebanon. Very successful, right? Um, not 100% successful, but very successful. Um, the only way Iran could do that is if the Assad regime is weak and if the Assad regime is pliable enough that they can sort of move in, certainly to the south of the country, and sort of con control the space. Um, there's also an uh, sort of an ancillary political benefit um, that has accrued, I think, certainly to the Russians, uh, I would argue to both. Um, Israel has been, at least in the early going of the war with Ukraine, the Russian war with Ukraine, Israel was less forceful, I would argue, than it should have been in supporting Ukraine. And they gave all sorts of reasons for why that is. And one of the big reasons was, well, Russia is deployed to our north and we have this sort of security condominium with the Russians. And if we support Ukraine too forcefully, the Russians will get mad and that security understanding will break down. I think the shoe's on the other foot now. And so now you have a situation where Israelis are, are very vocally, very openly saying, you know what, we, we miscued on this, we did this wrong, um, we were too clever by half, we should have sided more with Ukraine, right? What that, what that actually does sort of in the future, I, I think remains to be seen. But for a long time, this state, you know, where you have, one of the problems, uh, and, and this is a slight deviation, but I think you'll understand where I'm going with this. One of the problems that we saw in the last administration was we had advocates of regime collapse in Iran, in, in the form of John Bolton, for example. Um, and he it wasn't regime change, it was regime collapse. Let's sort of apply enough economic pressure to bring the regime down without differentiating that there are different types of regime collapse. 
So for example, Venezuela is a type of regime collapse, a collapse where the regime loses cohesion, but it doesn't lose power, right? It loses control over its borders, it loses control over its economy, and you know, uh, becomes dependent on external forces and, and things like that. That is the scenario that we're seeing in Syria right now. You have a, a, a state of semi-collapse, and it's a state of semi-collapse that advantages the Russians and advantages Iran, um, because the Iranians can move in on the ground, the Russians can move in in the air, for example. Um, and it's a condominium that serves both interests for now, right? So, so for right now, both Moscow and Tehran are united in the idea that a weak Damascus serves them both really well, right? They don't want a strong consolidated states and they don't want Assad to go. Sir, in the blue shirt here. Uh, thank you. I too would like to thank you for a very informative and stimulating discussion to both of you and the insights about current developments. I was grateful to hear about your discussion of the women's movement since last September and the death of Masha Amini. And though it's been driven by women, it's there are other sectors that are involved in it. And I appreciated the, the reorientation, the targeting of rejection rather than its behavioral alteration. But during the past year, given all this, there have been some discussions about why that would be a weak move because there's no alternative. Some right. people talk about the Shah's family and parents, right. and, and even people who are against the regime will, will admit this too. My question is somewhat related. We've also heard that there's been some critique of the clerics by the IRGC. And so my question has to do, what is the relationship between the IRGC and right. the clerics? And does Putin interface with them separately? And what kind of tension might there be? And what do you project could happen there? So that's, that's really, I, I think, the $64,000 question. <laughs> because what you're actually talking about is you're talking about what, what alternative futures are likely for Iran, right? If, if the current regime is, you know, has a pr pronounced failure to thrive, if it's you know, aging sclerotic, it's on its way out, what could come next? I would make the argument, and this is actually something I'm working on now, but I would make the argument that we're actually very unsophisticated in our thinking about the Iranian opposition, right? And part of the reason is because we haven't really thought deeply about what we, America, from a national security lens, would want a future Iran to look like. Um, and so what we get instead is we, we are very Pavlovian, if you could use that term, because what we say is, oh my God, we have, a, we have an Iran, Iranian nuclear program. And then an opposition group comes to Congress and says, We'll solve that for you. And we're like, okay, great, perfect. We'll sign on the, you know. But, but that's not really a fulsome strategy. I would actually argue that there are three scenarios that are the most likely for Iran, right? Uh, as much, and, and, and I share with you the, sort of the, the, the per perception of what's happening there, right? What's happening there is enormously encouraging, but it's not a revolution, right? I would argue. It's not a revolution because what you see is the Iranian people know what they're against, but they don't know what they're for, right? They, they know that they reject the Islamic Republic, but they haven't really coalesced into serious thinking about what comes next. In the absence of that coalescence, I would argue there's three scenarios that are the most likely. First scenario is, a and again, right, all drawn from history, right? We're sort of, you guys do history here at IWP, so we'll draw it from history a technocratic transition a la Deng Xiaoping's China, right? So what happened in the 1970s was, you know, Mao, when he was in power, was an enormously brutal leader who led to the death of tens of millions of Chinese. 
as a result of his uh, cultural and social policies. When he died in the uh, mid to late 1970s, Deng Xiaoping came in and he said, and by the way, Deng Xiaoping was with the program, right? Deng Xiaoping did not reject Maoism, but he made it, what do you call it? Maoism with a human face or whatever it was. And so he made a priority of creating a technocratic elite, right? To de-ideologize to a point, right? Don't let the ideology drive. Install people that know how to run the economy, that know how to do agrarian, uh, agrarian practices, things like that, right? And over time, the lot of the average Chinese became better, right? And the sense of crisis passed. And this is actually exactly what's happening within Iran today, right? Iran has massive problems. Iran has, you know, uh, a succession of administrations that did ruinous financial practices, and their, their economy is, you know, sort of in a shambles. Um, the, they have a hydrological crisis. They have a resource crisis to the point where there are dozens of cities around the country that have insufficient potable water for the consumption of its citizens. And so they have to have water uh, brought in by tanker truck, right? I mean, just insanity. And so what you've seen, right? Ibrahim uh, Raisi, the current president of Iran, is best known for, you know, for being the hanging judge for sort of all his human rights abuses. But if you actually watch what he's done since he's been president for the last, what, two and a half years, um, he has actually installed a whole series of technocrats in all these ministries, right? So you very clearly see that there's a recognition that you have to, you may, it may not be uh, politically saleable to de-ideologize, but you need competence, right? And so, so I can see the Iranians moving in that direction as a government. And as a result, they managed to peel off some segment of the people who are protesting now because you know, their lot gets better and they sort of, they go home. They're like, oh, you know, my, you know, my bank account is, is marginally better. So that's one scenario, right? This technocratic transition. Second scenario is what I just talked about, right? The, the partial collapse, a la Venezuela, right? Uh, regime collapse is not a unitary thing. It can take many forms. And you can imagine a situation where Iran, rump Iran, remains intact. The Ayatollahs don't fall from power, but they lose control over their hinterlands, over their periphery, right? Where there's lots of ethnic tensions and, and uh, you know, for example, on the border, the common border between Iran and Afghanistan, for example, right? Um, and so that's happening a little bit as well. And the third, and I think actually the most likely scenario, and this is where Russia comes in, is a, an assertion of power by the deep state. And I say that, that phrase advisably because I've spent a lot of time in countries that have actual deep states, right? Like China and Russia and, you know, Iran has an actual deep state. Iran has a uh, corpus of officials, a corpus of power within, you know, an entrenched bureaucracy that is so powerful that they could fundamentally reorient the course of the country, right? The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps controls a third or more of the Iranian national economy. Um, so this was precisely what happened in Russia's transition from the Soviet Union to post-Soviet Russia. The KGB, which was a deep state, it was a state within a state, had to make a decision. There were people like Vadim Bakatin, who was the guy that Yeltsin brought in to pull apart all the different intelligence agencies um, and sort of, you know, and, and strip them of their power, they had a, a decision point to make uh, in which they said, hey, listen, we could go out of power or we could de-ideologize and consolidate power. So you can imagine a scenario, that third scenario, and I actually, unfortunately, think it's the most likely scenario in which the Revolutionary Guards 
takes over, de-ideologizes, takes over um, a lot of the functions of government, right? It doesn't mean that the Ayatollahs go away, but they're not in charge anymore. Um, and it becomes a military dictatorship or moves in the direction of a military dictatorship. And, you know, there have been people like my friend Ali Alfonin, who used to be at the American Enterprise Institute, who, you know, he wrote a whole book of, about it. I think he was a little early in his prescription, but I think that trend line is very, very clear. And I would only point out that from an American national security perspective, um, that is not the worst of all possible outcomes. Because right now, we have a lack of stable communications with the IRGC, right? The potential for catastrophic miscalculation is actually very high. And you sort of saw this during, active, during the, the time span of active military operations in Iraq. If you have a military dictatorship in Iran and you have stable lines of communication, it's not an optimal scenario, but it's not the worst of all possible worlds. So. I'm going to try to fit in two more questions. Sorry, that was, that was a long answer. That's okay. That's okay. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Yeah, go right ahead. I'm curious, I'm always curious what experts uh, are interested by, so please uh, consider that in the answer to this. Um, is there anything you have your eye on regarding strategic partnerships or um, alignments for the United States, keeping in mind everything that we've discussed with alignment between uh, Russia and Iran? Right, well, so, so I think that's a great question. Um, I'm all about sort of looking for I'm a glass half empty guy, but but it always pays to sort of think about you know how do, how do you improve your position, right? You can always improve your position. I would make uh, a tactical observation and a sort of a strategic observation. Tactical observation is that I read the paper like the papers like all of you read the papers, right? The situation in the Middle East looks very very grim. The one thing that I would point out that not enough people are pointing out is that Israel has not lost the Arab world for a very simple reason, right? The uh, Muslim population of, of the planet is 1.8 billion people. 85% of them are Sunni, 15% are Shia. Um, and so what we're talking about is not an Iranian conversation. It's, it's sort of mostly a Sunni conversation. The commonality among all the countries that Israel has made partnership with already and is likely to is that they're all afraid of the Muslim Brotherhood. Right? They're all afraid of the Muslim Brotherhood because it poses different challenges in different ways. Right? Uh, in Morocco, for example, the Muslim Brotherhood, until very, uh, comparatively recently, until last year, the Muslim Brotherhood was the, the strongest political bloc in their legislature, and it helped reshape their politics. It's, it's less influential now, but uh, still, still a factor to consider. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, it is seen as a challenge to the authority of uh, the House of Saud. Uh, in Bahrain, right, so, so on, you can sort of go through these iterations. The reason this is important is because what I think, I, I could be wrong, but what I think we're likely to see in the weeks ahead is more latitude from the Arab world for Israel doing what it's doing, provided it calibrates its offensive properly, right? It sort of retains focus on dismantling Hamas because everybody understands, even though sometimes our politicians don't understand quite as well as they should, that Hamas is seen by the Arab world as being this sort of standard bearer of the Muslim Brotherhood. And if Hamas succeeds in the Gaza Strip, all of these countries are gonna have problems with the Muslim Brotherhood. So I think they're likely to present, to provide Israel with a little bit of latitude, right? Patience is not infinite, right? 
So that's the tactical observation. The strategic observation is, as we've now discovered, the you know, who was who was it that said Jim? Who was it that said that that uh, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you? Drotsky. Was it Drotsky? Yeah, Drotsky. I, I was hoping it was somebody. I thought it was Drotsky. I was hoping it was somebody nicer. But um, yeah, okay. So right. So uh, so I think that's the case, right? Um, you may not be interested in conflict, but Islamic extremism is interested in conflict, right? It sees itself in sort of diametrical opposition. And a whole bunch of really smart people like Dr. Robbins have written about the sort of the juxtaposition between Islamism and democracy and how democracy poses a threat to the hierarchical order of thinking that Islamists engage in. The reason that's important is because we have, over the last couple of years, really pivoted away from this sort of thinking, right? We are now fully in the frame of great power competition. We're, it's all about China to a lesser extent about Russia, right? We're thinking about force on force competition. We're not really doing the war on terror. We're not doing any of that. But it still exists as we've seen over the last month. The problem, my historic problem with uh, the way we've thought about counterterrorism, counterinsurgency has been that we are too good at what we do. Meaning, uh, when you think about the war on terror, you inevitably think about it in the context of the US military, right? US military in Iraq, US military in Afghanistan, US military in Syria, the coalition to defeat ISIS. But the real battlefield, right? I, I would argue the one that matters is intellectual. It's a, uh, an attempt by Islamists who are smarter than the guys from ISIS who are trying to, you know, it, it's ballots, not bullets, who are trying to ch change constitutions, who are trying to change the sort of the rules of the road in majority Muslim societies. We have a problem because we don't have any standing to compete on ideas with these guys. But there are countries that do. Countries like the Emirates and Bahrain and Morocco and Indonesia and Uzbekistan and you know, sort of you can go through your list. All of these countries share the same problem. They have different answers, right? So in places like Indonesia, they have a you know very devout right pray uh, they're Muslims pray five times a day right the majority of the country is Muslim and yet they have something called the Pancasia which is the five principles right which puts uh, nation state over caliphate right so they bound the religiosity with patriotism right so that's one model you go to uh, someplace like Bahrain and you have this dual model where they've bifurcated re uh, religion and society and so what they have is they have this uh, social resilience program that's built around education. It's built around sort of uh, inculcating, uh, you know, school-aged children with, you know, <laughs> kind of like the sort of, uh, I mean, you're going to laugh, but kind of like the U.S. DARE program, right? The, you know, uh, the one that we've used to very great effect. And then they have this, this uh, communal outreach program um, uh, on, on the religious side, uh, right, where, the, where they're doing sort of all this outreach with like-minded institutions. In Egypt, you have Al-Azhar University, right? Not without its problems, mind you, right? As, a, as an intellectual institution, but they have a corpus of clerics that is now uh, writing treatises and issuing fatwas that debunk the ISIS interpretation of the Quran, right? And they're able to do that because they're an institute of higher Islamic learning. So I'm giving, like, this is a lot, but I'm giving you all this example because this is actually a, something, a struggle that's going on right now. And it's something that we're paying almost no attention to but it's enormously consequential. And our, whole, our role as the United States is, you know, 
we're, we're the convener, right? If we can highlight, you know, who the good guys are, you know, who's doing constructive work, that's enormously effective. And so, so to me, that's sort of, that's really uh, the pickup game right now. We have time for one more question. Um, Okay, it's okay. You're fine. <laughs> you get me rolling, and you know. So. I think I think everybody's intellectually stimulated at at this point. Carl. Carl Wagner, I'm a student here. Uh, I'm just wondering if you could offer your perspective on um, Iran towards Iraq currently. It's interesting. Um, the so I. Advisedly, I, I'll do something that most people in Washington don't do, and I'll, I'll tell you where my knowledge ends. So, like, I'm not an Iraq specialist, I, but I can tell you that from the from the perspective of somebody who spends a lot of time looking at Iran, the Iranian interest in Iraq is not that dissimilar from the Iranian interest in Syria. Meaning, it's all about dividing and conquering politically. So, it's all about sponsoring militias. Um, you know, that have a tremendous amount of political heft, right? So, so the, the greatest gift that was ever given to the Iranians was when the uh, Hashd al-Shabi, which is what they're known as collectively, the, the Shiite militias, the powerful Shiite militias that Iran bankrolls, were brought into the fold, into the Ministry of Defense, because they were seen as intrinsic partners in the fight against the Islamic State. And they sort of stayed there, right? So now Iran has enmeshed itself in the working, in the machinations of the Iraqi state. In terms of uh, politics, the Iranians for a long time have done in Iraq what they've managed to do in places like Lebanon, which is they find sympathetic politicians and they pay them off. And they sort of, they stack the legislature, they stack the government, they sort of do all sorts of stuff. But the common theme here is one of a weak Iraq, right? For a couple of reasons. First of all, because a strong Iraq is a security threat, uh, sort of a hard security threat from, uh, for Iraq uh, in historical terms. But also a empowered Iraqi Shia community is an intellectual threat. And so there's a guy by the name of Ali Sistani. Um, he is the senior Shiite cleric in Iraq. He is arguably the senior Shiite cleric in the world. He is more senior than the supreme leader of Iran, right? So what happened, if you go back in 1989 and you read the history, what happened when the Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini died, um, the current supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, was selected not because he was a senior cleric, because he wasn't. He was selected because he was a consensus candidate, um, right? It satisfied all, all sorts of internal political factions. The problem with that is that ever since he's been trying to establish himself as the loudest voice in the Shia political sphere. So people like Sistani are huge threats to his legitimacy. And Sistani is not with the Iranian program. Sistani believes in quietist Islam, uh, uh, Shiism that is sort of divorced from politics, that's sort of uh, more compliant, it's not insurgent. And not coincidentally, Sistani has been under house arrest for how, a long time, right? Long time, um, right? Because he is a threat. He's a threat intellectually to the Islamic Republic. So my sense is that that the aggregate result is that an Iraq that's fragmented, that's sort of riven by these political uh, sort of competing political interests, where Iran can you know play one side against the other, can sort of insinuate itself, 
is exactly what the Iranian regime wants. What the Iranian regime doesn't want is an Iraq that's actually successful. Well, Elon, uh, thank you very much for coming. This has been very informative. Wow. Uh, your mind, it just it speaks volumes. Uh, you, you should see me in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when you've had your coffee, right? That's right, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, well, thank you very much for coming and, and letting me and everybody else pick your brain here. Um, Anytime. Anytime. On, on, on behalf of IWP uh, and AHS, thank you, thank you for coming, sir. Thank you guys so much.